Hi, this is Glenn Peoples. You're listening to Your Morning Jacket. Uh, I mean, Your Morning Joe. Uh, damn, obviously, you're listening to the Your Morning Coffee podcast with Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart, weekly music news for the new music business. Take it away, guys. From Billboard, the changing world of record label streaming. And also from Billboard, Spotify lays out roadmap to higher margins. Here's the plan. I know it seems like we're not doing that many stories, but Jay, these are both (laughs) so dense. Oh, there's so much to it. So much to it. So Jay, what do you say we just kind of get comfortable here and let's hit the play button because here we go. Stand by for transmission. This is London calling. Wake up! Your morning coffee, the weekly music news for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. Now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. All right, Jay Gilbert, brother Jay Gilbert, it is good to see you, my friend, on a late Sunday. This is kind of like the latest we've ever recorded the show, I think. Yeah, but the show must go on. The show must go on. We just roll with it. Sometimes it's early in the morning, sometimes it's later in the afternoon. It's all good. But we've been traveling. Each of us have been traveling, so that's why we kind of move it around. And uh, because, Jay, you, you you, you don't sleep, you've got... Not only do you do this podcast, not only do you do Music Business Weekly podcast, you've also got the great podcast with Glenn Peoples, the behind the <laughs> set list. So now you're doing three podcasts, Jay. I know. It sounds a little silly, doesn't it? And the behind but, the set list is fantastic. And of course, you get to talk to artists on that. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much. You know, that it's just been such a joy to do um, because artists don't really get a chance to talk about their set list much. And there's so much great information there you know why do you play this cover song why do you open with this you know there's a cadence to a a release or sorry a release a set list and it's it's really important and it's interesting like we had ann wilson uh, on the last episode and she's been creating the set lists for heart for decades and there's a method to her madness and it was really interesting listening to her describe you know why she does what she does and um, this next week, it'll be Kurt Smith from Tears for Fears. And I mean, that's it's super interesting uh, opening with one of your biggest songs and playing seven songs off your new album. There are things that you just wouldn't normally expect a band to do. 
And uh, so we're we're pretty excited about that. And uh, and thank you for mentioning that. Hey, you know what I want to mention also, you know, you talk about that, the, the kind of the nuance of of that. Um, so a good buddy of mine, Jim Lenz, who's now down in Nashville working for TKO uh, Artist Management or booking agency side of it. He has told me a number of times that he has had to take artists in and sit them down and say, you got to do a better set list. And, and sometimes artists don't want to do some of their hit songs. And he's like, wait a minute, <laughs> you've got to do those songs. And so people are coming to hear that. That's right. So it's it's a skill. Um, and not all artists do it right. I, I, that's, yeah. that's what I've gathered from, you know, hanging out with him. You know, he's had to kind of have the tough talk and say, okay, this set list is not great. Let's, let's figure out a better one. Yeah. Um, and it's definitely know, an art. To oh, it. absolutely. Absolutely. So it's, uh, anyway, it's just kind of, kind of, kind of toss yeah. that aside that, that some artists are really not very good at that. But anyway, that's, yeah. that is what it is. And then speaking, speaking of Glenn Peoples, uh, he's got the fantastic, uh, it's, it's weekly, right? It's his weekly newsletter right. called The Ledger. And he, yeah. a great piece, This just this last week, um, uh, that yeah. was, came out on Friday. Uh, and by the way, the, the Ledger is his weekly newsletter about the economics of the music business. And nobody yeah. better than Glenn Peoples, who of course is the lead analyst over at Billboard, to to talk right. about all of this money stuff. Um but a great piece. And I'll, I'll let you kick it off because we were talking well, about yeah, it before we hit record. You know, we, first of all, we appreciate Glenn doing our intro this week. And it's so funny. Um, and, you know, he's my partner in crime when it comes to the Behind the Set List podcast. And I think the ledger, if I'm not mistaken, you have to subscribe to Billboard Pro to get mm, this. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's the way it is. And I, I do subscribe and it's it's worth every penny. But he uh, he had something really interesting in his newsletter this last week. He said, since the early days of subscription music streaming, platforms have been measured by a single financial metric. And you and I talk about this a lot. Average revenue per user yep. or ARPU. ARPU. Now, after a decade and a half as a business and four years as a public company, Spotify seemingly wants to take ARPU down a peg. Its replacement, judging from the company's investor presentation in New York this last Wednesday is now what they call lifetime value or LTV, lifetime value. And that measures a user's total contribution over time to the company's bottom line. It's a holistic metric that helps the company assess its decisions and guides where, it's, uh, where it invests its money. So he goes on, he says, LTV combines how long a consumer uses Spotify and how much money they either spend on a subscription or generate through advertising. To calculate LTV, take a user's contribution margin, revenue less costs of revenue, such as music licensing fees, and discount to a single amount in today's dollars. And he says in parentheses, it's like the way an entire corporation or a public catalog is valued. Subscription ARPU is just one aspect of LTV. Monthly churn rate also plays a key role here. As the churn rate falls, people stick around longer, listen to more podcasts, pay more subscription fees, and raise the average LTV. On the flip side, something that increases churn rate can have an adverse effect on LTV. ARPU alone can't distinguish between the long-term implications of different decisions. Very interesting. This, yeah. this all came out on Wednesday, and he said one of the most enlightening pieces of data that was revealed 
was Spotify's monthly churn rate, mm-hmm. which fell from 5.5% in 2017 to 3.9% at the end of 2021. That was according to their CFO, Paul Vogel. So um, really interesting stuff. Uh, if you're interested in kind of the financials of or the economics of streaming and the new music business, uh, this is absolutely the best. It's Glenn Peoples, and the email is called The Ledger. Yes, and we're going to talk a lot about streaming uh, later on oh in the show. Oh, my gosh. That's right. You know, the other thing that you and I have been talking about a lot lately is TikTok, and we're not going to talk about that this week, but there has been a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of information that we've shared, a lot of stories that we've covered. And if you're interested in the continuing continuing wave of stories about TikTok's impact on the new music business, there were three really interesting stories in your morning coffee this last week. Uh, the three are, one was from Pitchfork. Uh, the headline was, TikTok is turning music marketing into a labyrinthian game. Number two is from Hypebot, and the headline was, should legacy musicians even try to use TikTok for promotion? I think the answer is yes. And then from the Vulture, uh, so your song went viral on TikTok. What's next? So we're not going to dig deep into that because we've been covering TikTok so much in the last two, three weeks. Um, we want to get into these two really great uh, pieces from Billboard this week. Um, but if you're interested in uh, the ongoing uh, wave of stories about TikTok, uh, check out your morning coffee this last week. And just to remember, make sure, just a reminder, I should say, make sure you just do subscribe to Jay's newsletter. The Your Morning Coffee newsletter comes out every Friday morning at an insanely early hour, Aww, early hour West you, Coast. Um, it is, I said this a million times, Jay is like the guy in high school you want to sit next to who knows all the answers to the, to the, to the test. So it's such a great resource. And it's Aww, been, for me, you know, it just... It just helps, you know. It, it Jay stays up late at night doing this for you, for you personally. <laughs> so make sure you subscribe. And by the way, Jay is Jay Gilbert. He is the co-founder of music and marketing, music marketing and strategy company Label Logic. As mentioned, he is the curator of the Your Morning Coffee newsletter, and he's also a former executive with Universal Music, Sony Music, and Warner Music, and of course Fox Home Entertainment as well. You know, and this guy sitting across me that you can't see, but you can certainly hear, is Mike Etchart, a longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, formerly of SST Records, Warner Music, Capital EMI, and Universal. Speaking of SST, have you have you read that Jim Rulin book on it's, SST it's Records? On my, it's, it's sitting next to me, actually. I have not read it. I can't wait to hear, since you were there, and you know how the sausage is made a little bit. When you do read that, no pressure, let's, let's do a little book review. Uh, yes. Chat. Have you read it? No, but I ordered it. Okay, yeah, yeah. I just got it and like, like, like uh, I think last Wednesday. So it, it, uh, I'm going to read it for sure. And but a couple of friends that that we work together there, they have sent me little images, little little pages clips. from from our yeah. era. Yeah. So I'm really looking forward yeah. to, to kind of getting into it. So I be, I can't fun. wait. And for those that don't know what we're talking about, there's a new book by Jim Rulin called Corporate Rock Sucks: The Rise and Fall of SST Records, a no holds barred narrative. Uh, history of the iconic label that brought the world Black Flag, Husker Du, Sonic Youth, Soundgarden, and more. Oh, I'm, yeah. I'm really excited. I can hardly wait. That. Hardly. I mean, I've kind of glanced at it. So, yeah, it looks really, really fun. By the way, and we would be remiss, Jay, if we didn't talk about the great folks that help us put the show on every week, including HypeBot. Since 2004, HypeBot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends in technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. It is edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from a Alana Bonilla, Hypebot, and sister blog Music Think Tank are published by live music discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town. 
Uh, speaking of bands in town, over 65 million live music fans trust bands in town to get their personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. It's the number one artist services platform connecting over 550,000 artists with their super fans. Managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard uh, to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. So check out uh, Bands in Town. Indeed. Fantastic. So big thanks to them. So Jay, let's jump into this. Boy, this first article, I was traveling this weekend, as I mentioned. I took this on the plane and I read it up and I read it back because there's so much amazing stuff. This is from Billboard. It's the changing world of record label streaming. And this has been an ongoing series that we have talked about a lot. Uh, the other yes. the other, the other uh, episodes, I, su- I guess you could say, of, of this particular thing. But boy, this one is, you know, there's one of these, there's a lot of stuff that you want to print out. But this is one that you got to print out because there's some what a great really series. interesting things in here. Yeah. Uh, Dan, cool. by Dan Reese. Is it Reese or yeah? That's I it's Rice. It's Rice. But um, we'll have to ask those guys so we get it right. But <laughs> yes, we've, sorry, Dan. we've covered a lot of his stuff, and I sent him a little note um, uh, last time we covered this because, as you mentioned, this is fourth in a series. The first one, and we've covered all of these um, on this program. One was on the first one was on A and R, and that was interesting mm-hmm. to hear how A and R works in this new music business. Then they did radio promotion. And then the last one that they did was just on uh, overall marketing. And this one, so you understand kind of the, the headline is the changing world of, and then colon. Colon, and, right. And so this one is record label streaming. And they talked to about a half dozen uh, marketing people from labels. And uh, they talked to Brandon Becker from Matador, Max Kaplan from Columbia, Adam Abramson, who I've worked with uh, over at Electra, Nicole Sabai, um, Raymond Acosta from Ramas, and uh, Josh uh, Remsberg um, from Warner Brothers. And they got their take on this new uh, music business and, you know, how labels, uh, how they work with streaming. Yeah, the approach and, and you know, kind of essentially sort of the, the retraining of everyone to focus instead of on physical sales on streams. I do want to mention, though, Jay, they, they start by talking about a pavement song uh, that came out back in the late 90s. A couple of different songs. Uh, one is called Spit on a Stranger. One is called Harness Your Hopes. Would I, before we even get into the depth of this, they, they mentioned that, that Harness Your Hopes really began to explode on Spotify. And in this age of so much data and so many things that we can glean, uh, they started to, They basically say that um, in 2017, this says, for reasons that are still a little mysterious to both the band <laughs> and its label, Matador, Harness Your Hopes began to explode on Spotify. I, I kind of took that to mean that with everything we know about streaming, and we know a lot, there are still some mysteries out there. And it's amazing how sometimes out just songs kind of come up from the ashes, the songs that came out a long time ago, for whatever reason... And they explode. And that's really the difference. One of the things, certainly, that is way different from the old music business and the new music business, that that sometimes things can just catch fire in a way that you can't really pinpoint. Well, I would argue that that's always been that way. When Adam and I worked together, I was handling WIA ADA uh, globally, um, the Amazon account, and he was at Atlantic Records. And I remember even in those days, there were certain things that we would watch 
um, for example, Amazon's movers and shakers. Mm -hmm. And that chart um, back then, I believe it was for physical, like CD, vinyl, and then they had one for digital and a download, not for streaming. And it was a chart of things that were increasing as a percentage on a rolling 24-hour basis. And every now and then, one of our records would just shoot to the top of movers and shakers, and we'd check around, like, was there a sync license? Was there a tour announced? Did somebody die? You know, and sometimes it was a mystery. You just didn't know. And we would look by market to see what DMA, which for those that don't know, that's designated marketing area. Um, we would look, what, what DMA is it popping from? Is there any radio airplay coming from that? Like, and the same thing kind of happened that you just described. Every now and then something would start to get heat and we wouldn't know why. Yeah, it's so interesting that that is still things that happen, but it makes it kind of fun, right? You know, it's just, sometimes you get that little gift. Um, yeah, and today it's easier, I think, to spot because every distribution company basically has a dashboard and there's ways that you're notified when something is spiking. And there are all sorts of platforms that you can subscribe to that will do something similar to that. And what I mean by that is if something just overperforms, um, you're notified, or you can go into your dashboard and see, you know, what's overperforming. And then you look and try to figure out why. And a lot of times you can figure out why, but there are always surprises. You know, it could be a TikTok video where they're using your track that you weren't aware of, or, you know, somebody's starting to play that song, uh, uh, as a cover song. There's so many different reasons why, but today with all the data we have, you know, um, it is, it's a little bit easier to kind of identify them earlier on. Yeah, exactly. But, the, but so that, that's kind of how the article starts talking about this pavement song back from 19, from an album in 1997, actually. But it says this song's belated journey to well-known status and the bands and labels embrace of the streaming partners that helped it along is emblematic of the changing relationship between record labels and the streaming services on which they've come to rely, where one of the keys, particularly for an indie artist is in finding moments like that to really amplify and connect with listeners that feels organic and not so forced and yeah. and that's kind of you know where we kind of lead into that it's 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 really a, a, a different mindset and I think further in uh, Max Kaplan the, one of the great lines that I circled on here Max Kaplan he's the VP of digital sales over at Columbia he said Columbia yeah. he said the big thing with streaming and something that I think people are still trying to understand is the marketplace originally was set up to sell a product um, but if you need to trigger actions multiple times over a long period of time in order to mm -hmm. promote an artist and in order to get paid, you need to think about how you disperse that content. You're competing for time and not money. So think about that. You're competing for time and not yes. money. So the framework has really shifted from that perspective. Yeah, and I'm hearing that from everyone across the board. It's, it's not about necessarily ownership. It's about access, for example. And what you just described is is spot on. And there's there's a really great um, couple of sentences here from Adam Abramson. You know, again, that's Elector's head of sales and streaming. He said, "My job has always essentially been pitching songs to gatekeepers, which were you know the next step directly to consumers. In the olden days, that was lobbying for listening posts and end caps and sale pricing and positioning and all of that. But philosophically, it's the same thing now. I'm still lobbying." 
Now for playlisting and banners and digital on and off platform visibility, using a lot of the same tools, just in a different marketplace. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting way of, of approaching that and thinking about it. And, yeah. um, I, you know, and then, you know, we talked last week about, you know, as we go on in this article, we're going to talk a lot about, again, this, this extension of, of keep, to keep putting things in the marketplace, new things in the marketplace. for, for And we talked about EPs and, and the changing dynamic of what an album is and was and right. how we're moving to these smaller packages, but but more things being spread out over time. And that's right. really, again, a, a complete different uh, paradigm of the way we used completely. to Completely. Yeah, completely. It used to be you'd drop an album every year, every 18 months, and you'd have a tour surrounding it, and you may have a couple of singles. And now it's that always on, in air quotes, yes. always on um, music industry. And what they allude to in this piece is that it's not as rigid as saying, okay, every four to six weeks we're going to drop a track. Um, what Adam alludes to later in this piece is that you really watch the data. Mm-hmm. And if something's performing, you let it ride and maybe put a little more gasoline on that fire. And that is... That's different than it's been in the past. Yeah, exactly. Well, they start by talking about the job, you know, and what is the job? What is this kind of sales and streaming and, and oversight job these days? And they yeah. say, you know, there are many paths into the streaming space at a label <clears throat> through the sales department, which originally picked up the DSP partners in the early days through the mm-hmm. revenue or finance departments, which have been heavily involved in trying to maximize that revenue from streaming and shifting strategies to do so, or through digital marketing, which has in many ways grown up and matured alongside the streaming evolution. And right. and that is, and that it, it seems like everyone has... Lots of people do, you know, paying attention to this, but it is kind of parsed out a little bit differently at labels. And you were one of the early adopters of all of this when we were at Universal together and, you know, paying attention to this. And it was mostly downloads then, but as we've transitioned from downloads to streaming, again, downloads was far closer to the old music business than... It was. Yeah. It really was because it was ownership and it wasn't necessarily access. And I remember in those days going to those sales meetings And, you know, I was kind of sitting off to the side and everybody would go through their numbers and I would give my numbers. And until they started becoming real numbers, uh, then it was like, okay, we need to pay attention to this. And like he points out in this piece, it, it fell on the sales and marketing teams. And later these record companies evolved and they call it commerce generation or revenue generation. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's not sales and marketing anymore. It's all this holistic approach and compare that to the way it used to be. And Kaplan points this out, you know, in the old days, if you didn't have real estate on the front page of iTunes, I mean, that was a big, big deal. Um, He said, if you didn't have real estate there, your release may as well never have come out. That's how important that was. He said, you know, um, iTunes store dominated the digital realm. So when streaming came along, the job was similar. You're working in partnership with the available DSPs to highlight your content, to do creative marketing campaigns together. But it's still somewhat, you know, of the wild, wild west, he says. And and I sense that and I can see that because it's the same game in some ways. It's about relationships. And I think Adam points this out a little later in the piece, too. It's about relationships and follow through. It's about telling the narrative and the story about why that release is important and why they should care. But it's also showing them the data 
on, and not everything has data, right? But a lot of it does. And they can, they can see, look, this thing's being uh, skipped very few times. It's being added to personal libraries a lot. It's got this sync license. They're going on tour. There's a collaboration on here. And those are these things that they can take back to their label um, and artist relations people at the DSPs to kind of get that either second bite at the apple or to get them to pay attention to something like you just mentioned. You know, there was that record that, that had been out for years at Pavement. Or, you know, you can take a look at that um, Fleetwood Mac track, you know, that got the, the guy drinking the ocean spray skating down the street, you know, on a skateboard. Uh, you can get uh, a second bite at that apple if there's strong data or a strong narrative. But but the majors have these relationships um, and the major indies with these DSPs and they have these weekly meetings and they can convey that. And that's how their jobs have changed. Well, and I think it's also a business of so much more now of patience and 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 really sort of methodically looking at all that data. And that that is a tremendous undertaking. And that's a little bit, you know, we've talked a lot about when we were in our early days of the business, when it was the changeover from from basically reporting for billboard charts to SoundScan and then to BDS. So we actually finally had some real concrete data with which to to kind of determine what was going on in the market in the in those days. Um, yeah. but boy the the exponential change which we have today where there's just it's just an avalanche of data and you know it's it, it's nuts and I don't know how yeah. you know it just makes my head spin when there's just so much available data out there. Um, but that yeah. really is it's 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 making it it's causing and helping people make educated decisions about how to how to move forward how to proceed and and what to, you know how it directs your campaigns which which is remarkable yeah. in the relatively short amount of time how dramatically things have changed it's crazy you know um one of the one of the most important roles for label execs it says in this piece you know in the streaming space it's about relationships not dissimilar to how uh, promoters mm -hmm. cultivate relationships with radio programmers to get songs played and and i've always felt like that that it's it resembles radio in some ways and in some ways it doesn't at all um but it, in some ways, it's more of a meritocracy and based on the quality of the music. But in other ways, it is relationship built. Um, and there's this woman, um, where is it? Nicole Sabai, right? Um, yep. She's the VP of Revenue at Interscope. And there's that, you know, revenue position. Word, again. yes. <laughs> right. She said that, you know, what shows up every Thursday night uh, or Friday morning, you know, Friday's a release date, but Thursday night at like 9 p.m., you start seeing these placements um, pop. What shows up every Thursday night or Friday morning is certainly not accidental, she said. That's weeks and weeks of work to plot out as much as we can. Always certain things are discretionary with the DSPs and up to their editorial voice. But there are a lot of things that we are actively working towards landing for our artists. You know, back in the, in the days of iTunes, it was the slider and the brick and, you know, their mass email. And there were just certain placements yeah. that, like they said in this piece, if you didn't land some of those, you were dead in the water and, you know, people were screaming, you know. And today, they're, 
it hasn't gone away. It's just a different medium now. And I want to go back to something that Adam Abramson said, which is really interesting, uh, talking about, you know, as, you, as you're kind of moving and setting up this stuff, he says it's about maintaining relationships and making them, meaning the DSP partners and kind of everyone out there, feel like they're part of the project from the beginning. Getting people yeah. music early, making contact with the artists if they're in the same market, getting them out to shows, and really making them feel that they're part of our family because ultimately we're all partners in this. So that kind of... The six P's, right? Proper planning prevents piss poor performance. It it is, uh, you know, it is building your team and and because it's it's so competitive, you know, you yeah. really and and you know we came up in an era too when when a lot of senior executives ignored uh, release schedules and, re- and and timelines to to get stuff into the marketplace and said this just has to come out and whatever and and then to make our quarter yeah and and forcing the issue and pushing you know kind of stressing the entire ecosystem because yeah. you were behind and that just doesn't fly anymore right it just doesn't yeah. fly in this environment you've got to be proactive and and patient and start with a laid out plan and really get it together early. It's not going to happen. Yeah. And what you just described, what Adam said, you know, that's, that's kind of always been yes. the case. And yes, there are people who would, uh, you know, push a release up to make a quarter or do whatever they had to do. But the way that you build that groundswell, especially for a new developing artist, all those tools and tactics we still use, you know, getting that early ownership, which could be getting somebody important into the studio to see the process, you know, happening. It could be, you know, a meet and greet. It could be, you know, a visit to a radio station. It's letting them know every step along the way what the plan is and getting their input and seeing what programs they have uh, to offer and which ones might make sense, you know, whether you're a DSP or, you know, you do uh, digital and physical like Amazon does. And I think that's really important. Um, Josh Remsberg, you know, who's a senior VP of commerce, there's that word again, at Warner Brothers, you know, um, he said all along the way, the job is more about more than just about pitching playlist editors and lining up marketing opportunities. It's managing people and also personalities and expectations. And I thought that was pretty smart. It, it says here that data can often tell a story that's not obvious on the surface. And I agree with that. But then there's also the emotional and music part. And that's still a big piece of this story. And that, that was Adam Abramson who said that. The curators at these DSPs are mostly real people that have come from music backgrounds and they're true, passionate music fans, right? And and while the data is great and I can use it to show that there's some stickiness or potential or something real is happening, it's also really important sometimes to just talk about the songs and the artists and their influences and the subgenres and really nerd out about music as a whole. And I can tell you that from my experience working with Spotify, Apple Music, Pandora, Deezer, Amazon, whoever it is, they're music freaks there. Yeah. And the thing that unites them and us is the same thing that brings you and I together, whether we're recording a podcast or just having lunch, is we can't wait to just, as Adam puts it, nerd out, you know, like geek out on, hey, did you hear that thing? You know, um, that, that I think is the equation that's sometimes missed and why we always say a playlist is not a marketing plan. There's so much more to building that brand, building that excitement around a release, um, and and just releasing music in general. 
you know, Josh talking about sort of the the managing people and also personalities and expectations, he kind of went on to say, and that's not just internally at the label, but it's also from an artist side, from a manager side. Artists and managers, as they should, have high expectations. And there are so many releases every single week, and rightfully so. Uh, every artist and manager wants more than their fair share. And as a label, we want more than our fair share on behalf of those artists. But that's an interesting point, yeah. too, when you're talking about managing expectations. And you and I have both dealt with artists and their managers over the years and that's a hard conversation to have but now there's there's also so much data to back up uh, those expectations and those plans and so I think yeah. that's one of the great things about data and all of the things that now are, are at the disposal of labels and managers and artists is that there's a bunch of stuff with which to glean important information um, yeah and that we didn't have yeah. that in the day in in, in, a, in a similar way that we do now yeah, it's funny. Some of these things we're describing are exactly the same as they were back yes. in the day, um, just maybe with a little bit different twist. And then some of them are not like that at all. And I think the best um, description of that, um, Raymond Acosta said um, that back in the day, you know, it, it was as if we were a brand new industry, you know, like the terms algorithm, trend and viral, right? Mm -hmm. We hear those all the time. They, they began to become a part of our daily parlance. Everything evolved, strategies, work plans, artists began to release more content more frequently, to your point, and even release dates changed. And that's something back in the day that didn't happen very often. You know, once you set that street date and put your PR in place and your tour and all of that, it was a solid rocket booster. It was going to go, and that's the end of it. But today, if something starts to overperform, they might pump the brakes on new music. and. Yeah having that freedom is really important. And then um, he, he goes on to say that, you know, as streaming grew in importance, fans gravitated towards it. New players like Apple, Tidal, Amazon Music came into the space, and labels began to drill down on what a streaming campaign was and how different from sales first rollout. But again, there's some holdover things um, that you and I talk about. For example, everybody is still so focused on that first week mm -hmm. and that's old school. Yeah. The, the newer, younger breed of record executives, they're not that focused on that first week. It's more of a, a release cadence and a release cycle. And they look at each track leading up to an album or an EP and they, they watch the data. It's, it's a bigger, uh, a larger picture. Whereas some folks from the old ways, they just look at that first week or two and then they're done. Yeah. And that's that's how the industry was a while back. But again, you still sometimes there's still managers, there's still artists that are gonna be focused on that. And that's you know, how you manage that is it can be tough. Um, Brandon Becker mentioned he said the first pivot was really the editorial. It became it became how do we get New Music Friday for this release? How do we get the Times Square billboards? Those types of things were real top of mind. They still are, but I feel like that was the campaign in a lot of ways. Once there once there was more competition in the market, you saw the rise of the exclusive albums, which is definitely something we had to navigate with a bunch of artists. That subsided a bit. There's still a little bit of that with original content pieces like Spotify Sessions, Apple's At Home Sessions, and those types of things where artists are doing original recordings for those platforms. But for a traditional album release, you see that less and less, which is great. He said, I think the services realized it was isolating fans and resulting in negative press for them in some ways. So that shifted. And a lot of the artists like that as well. So you know, you're talking yeah. about some of these things that used to be just de rigueur, that, that things you always wanted to try to do, 
and then you're not. No, no, no. That, that's that's that wasn't really getting to where we wanted it to get us to. So let's right. let's not do that. Right. And when we say a playlist is not a marketing plan, there's a reason for that. And it, he just illustrates this beautifully. If you have those, those are pretty lofty goals and, and it's great to have goals. But if you're in New Music Friday, you may only be in there for a week, week or two. Then what do you have? And if you have that Times Square billboard, that's a great look. And everybody wants that look. It's it's magic, right? And then you can take a picture of your artist in front of it. Look what I did. This is so great. And it's it's big. But it doesn't last a long time. So you have to have all these other things in place. Um, Adam Abramson went on to say it's it's always important to ship a lot of CDs or vinyl records. But now that streaming has become what it is, there's a lot more eyes on my department because we're hitting consumers directly. And I think mm -hmm. that's key. He said we have to be so in sync with every other department at the label. It used to be siloed. When you and I worked at Universal, it was a sales department, the marketing department, you know, the maybe it was that technology group that you and I worked with, you know, eLabs, eCat. But everybody kind of had their their silo, their group, and some of them were better at others than you know, working together. Mm -hmm. And what Adam's saying now, and I couldn't agree more, is that that doesn't work anymore. You have to be in sync with all of these different departments in a streaming world. Totally. One of the things they really mentioned that you and I have talked about a lot, which is so true, and this is from um, uh, what's his, uh, Raymond Acosta. He said, but streaming has also opened up a truly globalized market, turning regionally focused labels into worldwide distributors and allowing for the proliferation of new genres of music into the U.S. in a much more obvious and accessible way. For Latin, he said, it gave us the opportunity to take our language and our culture to the world. Things shift, shifted for the better because prior to this system was very tough to be heard in other places. Without a doubt, streaming has globalized music. It has also been a great yeah. opportunity for new talent. Today, you can upload your music to all the platforms and you have the opportunity to be heard by millions simultaneously. And I think back again to our days where there's another silo was the international department, right? And it was really hard slash impossible sometimes for uh, music that was very successful in other other territories for them to get any traction or any interest from the parent company to release it here in the states and i'm happy to see that, that because there changed. were costs involved yes that's right you know some but, pretty heavy costs whereas streaming you know you've got those digital files at the dsps and a lot of this stuff is global and yes there are markets like france and and japan where they lean pretty heavy on local repertoire. But as you're pointing out, that local repertoire is starting to get ears in these other countries. And it's become this globalized music industry because the barrier to entry is so low. And we don't have those production costs of making mm -hmm. vinyl CDs and then shipping them and placing them in stores and putting advertising around it. Now it's just, again, it, it comes back to that access. And I would say so, that there was a little bit of prejudice back in those days, I think. I think a lot of people a lot of people in the international departments were frustrated because the gatekeepers at the parent company here in the states uh, you know, why would why would kids want to listen to a record that's in Spanish or in Tagalog or Japanese? Right. And clearly that has been shown to be not the case at all. In fact, consumers right. are have a voracious appetite for things new and they are yeah. not they are not bothered by it not being in their native language at all. 
No. I mean, look at the explosion in Latin music. And I just love just the globalization of music in general yes. from streaming, which kind of, which kind of leads us to this, this section of this article called The Future. And this is leading into something even, even better in a moment. But just to kind of paraphrase this, this section called The Future, um, Dan says, it's easy to forget that streaming in the U.S. is still in its infancy. Mm. Yeah. And that its dominance as a source of revenue and focus is still only seven or eight years old. And I, I tell people that all the time. Like you know, the joke is, you know, this has been around a week and a half. Let's just yeah. calm down and, you know, just be smart about all of this. Um, I think the big things we're seeing right now on the DSP side are social tools, specifically with short form video, right? We talk about that every week, kind of rehashing the Tic Tac short form experience in some ways and finding ways to get that bite sized content in, in front of people and drive them further into the wormhole of content. Um, that was Becker that said that we're also seeing a big focus on HD audio and spatial audio mm -hmm. from a number of the services. And that's, that's something that, you and I talk about quite a bit because we're big fans of Dolby Atmos and spatial audio. And when done right, it's mind blowing. It Absolutely. is really special. And, you know, as you know, he was saying in this, you know, that th this has been a major focus for him for the last 18 months or so. And I think that's really important. The next part, I w it was something that, that you and I have talked about both on and off the show, but in, it's really important to mention, and, and this is, I think, Adam Kaplan talking about this. Music, of course, is hardly the only sector leaning into streaming technology and fighting for attention, which means that the format shift from sales to streams will continue to present some issues to solve for the labels down the line. And he said, I think the music industry is going to have, have problems with competition for time. Historically, I've been competing against other labels for who can have the biggest music release. But if you're competing for people's time instead of money, and remember we started talking about that, you can buy a movie and an album or 10 albums, but if there's only 24 hours in a day, you're competing with music, with video games, with Netflix, with there Hulu, with TikTok. People yes. we didn't see as competitors in the past are, are competitors now for people's time. And you and I have talked a lot about the, the like music is kind of, Fortunately, it's kind of off to the side, but when you, when you broaden it out and you open that focus to, to, to talk about video games, movies, and television, there are not enough hours in the day to, to, to absorb, to take in, to watch, to listen, all of the great oh, content out there. Right. It's, it, it, you're absolutely right. That, and that's so perfectly said. The, the thing about music that's a little bit different, I think, is that you can listen to music at a wedding and a funeral. You can listen to music while you're cleaning your house. You can listen to music and do other things. It's challenging sometimes. Yes, there are audiobooks, but it's challenging to read a book and do other things sometimes. Play a video game and do some of these other things sometimes. And you're right. It's all about that allotment, that, that time. Um, There's what, still only 24 hours when, in the day. Yeah, well, someone told me one time that when you're young, you have lots of time and a little bit of money. And when you get older you have a little bit more money, but very little time. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't agree more with, with that sentiment here that, yeah, they're competing on, on time. Yeah, he said, so you have to find a reason for people to want to listen to music more 
than watch a movie. And that's a decision that people didn't always have to make or that people in my position, referring to somebody at a label, didn't always have to consider when putting things out. That's only going to escalate as we get into the future with more phones, more screens, more platforms, more everything. 100%. And that's, I mean, that's why one of the many things that makes this piece such an amazing read. And just like you, I had to go through it several times as I'm highlighting it and reading it. And it's just, there's so much great information in here and, you know, uh, watch this space as they say, because six months, 12 months down the road, some of these things will have evolved. And then, then the, the final section here, which is the best part of this article, um, the headline is what goes into a great streaming campaign. And I'll just take the first one. Um, Adam Abramson, like I said, you know, we, we work together. I have a great deal of respect for him. Uh, he's very good at what he does. Um, they asked him first, and his response to what goes into a great streaming campaign, he said, it's, it's having everything come together at once. I think that's really important. There's so much we need to do as a record label to make a great streaming campaign happen. We're never ones to rely on any one sector of our company to make something successful. We need every department to pull their weight so we can give a good story to the DSPs, there's that narrative again, Mm -hmm. and help support that streaming campaign. Once we've done our job, then I can take that information and get playlisting, marketing, activations, excitement from the DSPs, getting people out at shows and really making them feel like they're a part of the whole team, right? And then expanding that to what's coming next, the next song, the next EP, the next album. That, you know, there's that always on music industry again and making sure that these relationships we're building are long term and not just about any given song. We're really trying to prove that the artist is someone who is going to be around and someone we're going to be working with for a long time. Yeah. Um, Raymond Acosta, who's over at the label with Bad Bunny, mentioned beyond budget, you have to understand the markets, the best time to attack and consumption in different territories. You have to look a step beyond and see if that consumption is coming from a smartphone, a computer or a tablet that changes the focus of the campaign and the way we reach the end consumer. Yeah. Yeah. Take take that Brandon Becker one, too, because I, I found that was really interesting, that whole kitchen sink approach. Yeah. He said it's everything in the kitchen sink. It's really a balance of everything. First and foremost is making sure that it's artist first. When we start a campaign, we love to have a conversation with the artist and their manager and really lay out what is on the table at the moment and then pick and choose our goalposts for the campaign. But we love to see as much engagement with these services because we know that's what gets them ticking. Our pitch is really all-encompassing. It houses everything from our press strategy to our media strategy to our radio strategy, really trying to amplify the hype. And that then, then that's also tied into a marketing campaign, on-the-ground engagement, our physical release strategies, all of it plays hand in, in hand. And then it's brought to the services on a silver platter. And we look to bolt on the various things depending on which service it is and try to amplify, amplify with editorial support, making sure algorithmic curation is optimized based on our release cadence. It's pulling out all the stops is the best way to put it. So we have a couple of interesting phrases there, algorithmic curation. Mm -hmm. And of course, we talk about release cadences all the time. And so, you know, that was, yeah, I'm going to, we need to come back to that algorithmic curation notion. That's pretty, (laughs) pretty heavy. Yeah. And let's, let's just do a a couple quick, more of these. I know we have to move on to this next piece, but there's so much in this article. 
Um, Nicole Sabai said, one, start early. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't agree with that more. Um, I was talking to some friends of mine at Apple Music when we were in Nashville, and, and one of the gripes was people come to them you know, on a Monday and say, hey, I'd like these playlists on Friday. And they're like, that is not going to happen. Yeah. You know, you need to get way out in front of this and show them your plan, show them your drivers and, and talk about the narrative and why they should care. All of those things that Adam was talking about. So again, Nicole Sabai says one, start early two, have an artist and manager that are very willing to be open-minded on what we can get done. Three, getting that music out to different editorial teams as early as possible because the longer people can sit with the music and the more we can tell them about it, the better. And I just think that that's, that's gold advice. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, and I think to be honest and fair, uh, the music industry has a terrible history with, with uh, being long-term in terms of, of, of pacing and stress and everything, you know, it's, it, it's an industry where we have historically always kind of had to jam systems because of album is delivered late. It's just, it, there's just so many reasons why it's, it's always happened that way. And this is really forcing us in the industry to, again, to be more long-term and to have things set up in a way that it, that you can't, you can't force it anymore. You just can't, if you want to have success. So, yeah, so our hats off to Dan Rice yes, um, Dan. On, on this thing. Print this out. It's one of, you know, it's a series of four. I'm sure there are going to be more. The Changing World Of, and this is uh, in Billboard. What a great piece. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. So let's jump over to our last one, Jay, from also from Billboard. Spotify lays out roadmap to higher margins. Here's the plan. Yeah. Yeah. Higher margins, Jay. They want to make well, more money. Well, look. They got to make more money. And we've been hearing about this. Glenn Peoples wrote this. And, you know, we've, we talk often about how he's on these earnings calls and he makes sense of these things. And they had this, you know, this presentation is what it was. Spotify CEO Daniel Eck and a parade of top executives had a simple message for investors in a live stream presentation from New York this last Wednesday. Our margins will be better. And we're, you and I are going to dig into like, well, how do they get better margins when they're a streaming company. And uh, Daniel X said, I'm I'm not sure the journey's very well understood. And frankly, we probably haven't done a very good job of explaining it. Despite posting 24% revenue growth in both 2021 and the first quarter of 2022, the company's share price is down almost 52% in 2022. So they had this, this presentation and which was uh, four they, hours, by the way. Oh, yeah. It's <laughs> four hours. It was called Investor Day. And I read a lot of great pieces. There's a piece in Hypebot that was really great yeah. about this. But let, let's talk a little bit about how are they going to achieve more of this margin? So he, they started by saying to achieve this, rather than music, Spotify executives focused on non-music content, such as podcasts and audiobooks uh, to a lesser degree. The company still sees itself primarily as a music service, and music is the cornerstone to its platform. But as it detailed throughout the presentation, by the way, did I mention that was a four-hour presentation, Jay? Uh, wow. The larger opportunity is being an audio company that provides both, both music and non-music content in a single product. Right. We talk about podcasts because they can own those or yep. license them. Mm-hmm. And but but here's the thing. Glenn points out that currently podcasts are a financial drain on Spotify. 
while music has, you know, basically a 28% gross margin, podcast gross margin is minus 57%. Although although podcasting grew more than 300% to nearly $200 million in 2021, that came with a $103 million negative impact on gross profit. That's from their CFO, Paul Vogel. That's because Spotify must buy and build the tools, products, and exclusive or original content in order to capitalize on this potential. So to date, Spotify has acquired some podcast creators like Gimlet and The Ringer. So those things cost money, yeah. and the infrastructure costs money. And yes, will eventually, will that show profit for them? Yeah, and it'll be better than for music. So that's one area that they talk about is podcasting. And they do say that they believe it can achieve uh, gross margins of 30 to 35% within three to five years. And they see a 40 to 50% as attainable further in the future. The trick, that's a lot. yeah, it's a lot. The trick will be getting the necessary scale anchor, which is a platform for do it yourself. Podcast creators powers more than 75% of Spotify's more than 4 million podcasts, which has grown from fewer than 500,000 since it acquired anchor in 2019. That is a gigantic number. My God, I was shocked to see that that's that 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 one sort of platform accounts for that high of a percentage of their podcast. Yeah. That, that's shocking. It's and it wasn't that way. Um, you know, Apple owned that territory for the longest time. Yes, they did. Um, you know, Glenn points out that it's it's going to be hard to imagine Spotify getting to its goal of one billion users by twenty thirty, just with music alone. So, you know, podcasts. That's one area. You know, they, they want to own that just like Amazon owned Audible kind of owns the audiobook um, sector. But there's some other areas where they're going to be looking to make uh, some revenue up. And and some of those areas, there was an article in Hypebot and the headline was to earn a hundred billion a year. Spotify shares plans that change uh, musicians, charge musicians, I'm sorry, for access and I want to make sure we're running out of time here, but I want to make sure we cover these things because it's really crucial how they're looking at potentially bringing in more revenue. The first one, discovery mode. Now, you and I have talked about discovery mode. It's not rolled out to everybody yet. But basically, if you sign up for discovery mode, they're going to put your music in front of more people that would probably dig it if they heard it and uh, based on their listening habits. And it's, it's a paid thing, but you don't pay money up front. They just take that out of your, your uh, royalties that right. you would make from that. And for a developing artist that doesn't have a big budget, that's, that's a pretty cool thing. So we've been talking about that. Some people are saying, that nah, looks a little close to payola. I don't really like that. But now they're talking about, you know, maybe they're not going to be charging a flat fee. Maybe Spotify takes a commission mm -hmm. and, you know, effectively lowering the per stream rate. Spotify argues that Discovery Mode delivers a 40% lift in listeners, half of which say they're new to the artist. So they're hinting that this may not be something that is just taken off of those royalties, that maybe it's paid for, and they want to roll it out to more people. But this is something you and I were just kind of uh, talking about before we hit record, is if everybody using Spotify, and when I say everybody using it, artists that are trying to promote their music, if they all do discovery mode, doesn't that dilute just negate, the pool? Yeah, just dilute and completely dilute the, 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 the platform, absolutely. 
Um, yeah. They're also talking about uh, visual native ads. They're, they're the free, yeah. of course, as you know, the free streaming service is supported by advertising. Um, yep. They're planning to sell more, and they they have a new ad product called Marquee, which uh, it went self service in the U.S. last year, which doubled the number of new customers, leading to a Q1 revenue increase of 224 percent compared to the previous year. So, yeah, we use Marquee, and yep. those those ads are. Um, more effective with some artists than others, but it's a pretty cool, you know, um, banner that you can use uh, with Spotify and getting it in front of those um, those folks that are on the ad supported uh, version of Spotify. And so I can see them look discovery mode. Maybe they make more money. Podcast. Maybe they make more money. Now you're talking about these native, meaning you know, on the platform mm-hmm. ads. And then another one that they talk about is ticketing. Yeah. Um, Spotify said that they've helped to sell more than $300 million in ticket sales through its partnerships with ticketing companies. Unsaid was that Spotify receives a commission from most of these sales. So that's another way that I hadn't thought about where they can uh, drive revenue. And the last one, I'd, lo- I'd love to get your thoughts on this, but really quickly, as we mentioned, Fans First. Fans First is this cool thing in Spotify where Spotify will um, determine a certain number of fans for an artist, maybe in a certain region, and they'll, you know, originally there would be events, like maybe you'd go bowling with Taylor Swift or something like that. Now it's really broken into a couple of different areas, at least as far as I can tell. One is tickets and the other is merch. So if you do land a fan's first campaign for one of your artists, it's usually an exclusive piece of merch. Um, Maybe it's a vinyl thing. Maybe it's a t-shirt, whatever, in a a limited run for those super fans of uh, that, that artist, right? And the other one is maybe either early or exclusive access to tickets. So I just, before you jumped into that, I wanted to kind of explain what fans first was. Right. And it says Spotify does not currently take a cut of sales or its tipping feature, but that could change. So, you know, oh, listen, you just mentioned tipping feature. Yeah. Um, I'd even forgotten about that. That's like the artist pick on Spotify. Mm-hmm. You can do crowdfunding or you can have money that's for charity, whatever you want to do. But again, that's one of those areas when I was thinking about how can they monetize or how can they get more margin? Yeah, they could they could take a bigger chunk of that. Or it sounds like they're not taking a chunk right now um, of that. And then, of course, you know, that Shopify integration. Yeah. You know, um, so, yeah, there are there are a lot of different ways I hadn't really thought of where they could uh, generate more margin. But as you pointed out last week, this is their only gig. You know, they um, they don't have hardware. Yes, they do have that car thing. But in general, they don't have the things that like Google has or Apple has or Amazon has. Those other companies aren't reliant just on music. In fact, I would argue that if music was taken away tomorrow, they would still be fine. Whereas Spotify, it would be a challenge to just have a platform that was podcasts, you know, and audio books. You that music is so important to their business. But it sounds like they're branching out into other areas to, you know, to monetize. Money is the new gatekeeper. <laughs> you know, it says Spotify once promised to eliminate the gatekeepers, deliver a global audience, and help more musicians earn a living. But that promise has shifted, Jay. Now Spotify will help an artist build an audience if they are able to pay for it. Aye. There it is. 
It is what it there is. It is. It is what it is. And on that note, Jay, what it is is we need to wrap up episode number ninety-six of the podcast. Jay and I want to thank everybody for listening, and of course, we want to thank the groovy folks over at Hypebot and Bands in Town for helping us put the show on every week. We could not do it without them. Big thanks to them. And Jay, let's wrap it up. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back next week on the Your Morning Coffee Podcast. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know. <laughs>